With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't-miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. Michael, we have a ton to get to. Kind of a signature victory for the Philadelphia 76ers on Wednesday night over the Los Angeles Lakers. We've been looking for that from them. Kind of a weak schedule to start the season. And they pulled it out just by uh, just by the slightest margin there, thanks to a Tobias Harris game winner. We're going to dive into that. We're going to maybe talk first quarter MVP and how the MVP race is shaping up. And we're going to take a bunch of listener questions as well. Michael, one thing we're not going to do is dive back into the Kyrie Irving fake trades, at least not today. But I do want to thank everybody from around the world. I think it was like four different continents checked in, Michael, with Kyrie Irving fake trades. Um, I've got 10, 12, 15 different teams angling for Kyrie Irving's services, according to our emailers. It was just a phenomenal response. Maybe we'll grab some of those next week. Before we dive into all of this, I want to just take a quick moment to recognize uh, Seku Smith, uh, the NBA TV podcaster, uh, you know, video star, uh, writer for NBA.com, who died earlier this week from COVID-19. I knew Seku since basically 2010 or 2011. He was a, an original NBA podcasting pioneer. I know a lot of people listen to the Basketball Jones and then uh, the Starters and other the No Dunks, and they were one of the original big-time NBA shows. Uh, certainly the Hangtime podcast from NBA.com was one of the major first national NBA podcasts. Seku had an unbelievable voice. Um, and great takes and a take on basically everything. That's sort of what I remember about him, Michael, is it doesn't matter what the conversation was. He had strong opinions. He wasn't afraid to share them. And it, he did so in, in a jovial and very natural way. Just a great communicator um, in all mediums, but especially in this podcasting medium. And I don't want that to get forgotten. 
I'll also say, I mean, this hit, this hits pretty hard. He was in the bubble. Um, we happen to have kind of aligned schedules. We often took the same bus over to games before games. So we would kind of stand there and wait for the charter bus for 10 or 15 minutes and just talk about whatever it would be. And Michael, you know how people can get where they want to steer the conversation certain directions. For me, for example, you know, I can't go an hour without talking about Tim Duncan or John Stockton or whatever it might be. For Seku, that was his family. And, and he really would just, no matter almost what the conversation topic was, he would find a way to mention his children um, in almost every turn. And to understand how young he was and understand that he's leaving a family behind is, is very, very sad, very emotional. Uh, I'm not sure if you had anything else you wanted to add on Seku, but I do know he was the type of person who touched basically everyone within the NBA community. And, and you saw the outpouring of support from media members, players, uh, executives, and and other television figures as well. Yeah, I never met Seku, which is a, a regret on my part. Um, and it really hit me when you just see the outpouring of love and admiration um, for him when he passed. And uh, even though I, I didn't know Seku, like just piggybacking on what you said, Ben, like I remember, you know, he was one of the first podcasts that I ever listened to and I loved it. And I remember going on these super long walks during my lunch breaks um, at an old job of mine. And uh, just, he was in my ears basically every day or when, however often they would release a new episode. So this is just obviously uh, a super, super sad, very tragic and condolences to those who knew him well and uh, definitely to his family, which I cannot imagine the grief they're feeling right now. Absolutely. The amazing thing about him, I think you saw a lot of writers chime in sort of his big brother mentality or his mentorship role, especially within the uh, NABJ community. One thing that I just noticed, you know, I went back and, and read some original emails from like 2010, 2011 that he had sent me. I mean, first of all, he is just a naturally curious and outgoing person, but he also wanted to have just kind of every bit of knowledge he could consume. So he was like picking my brain about Greg Oden's injury rehab. I mean, this is more than a decade ago now, Michael. And I'm, you know, for lack of a better phrase, I'm a snot-nosed punk blogger at that point, right? Like I'm absolutely <laughs> nobody. Some people would argue... I'm still the same person. That's fine. Uh, but uh, here he was, you know, asking, you know, detailed questions about, okay, so if this happens with Odin, then this happens. And he was kind enough to bring me on to that Hangtime podcast to talk Blazers a, a couple times. And he actually stepped forward a, a few years ago, Michael, when uh, I needed a, a guest co-host just on the spot with very short notice. Um, not only did he step up and just, you know, record the show with me and, and help me just, you know, cover that spot, which I, I really appreciated at the time, but we actually did it at his hotel room. And then he was offering me dinner and like, can I get you this? Or do you want some iced tea from room service and all this other stuff? And I was like, you know, Seiku, you definitely don't have to do that. <laughs> like any of this is not necessary. I'm just so appreciative that you would take the time to, uh, you know, bail me out in a pinch. So that's the type of guy he was. And, and on top of it, you know, big time Michigan football fan like I am. He's from Grand Rapids. My family's from about 45 minutes away from Grand Rapids. So there was a number of touch points that I felt like I could identify with him over the years. And I think that was the magic of Sekou. He had the ability to kind of create those touch points to have that magnetic personality where everybody felt very close to him, drawn to his spirit. And it's a massive loss. And, uh, you know, it's just so unfortunate. Uh, all right, Michael, there's no easy way to shift gears from there, but I do think we should hop into some basketball talk. 
Now, let's start with these Philadelphia 76ers. I mentioned some of the strength of schedule concerns earlier. They've played a lot of weak opponents. They've played a lot of games at home relative to the road, and yet they've been winning. They can only play the games in front of them. They're the number one team in the Eastern Conference by record, and they did get their best victory of the season, uh, you know, hanging on to beat the Lakers on Wednesday night, thanks to the Tobias Harris game winner that I mentioned. There was a lot going on in that game, a number of different strands that I want to pull on. I guess, you know, just big picture, are you taking the Sixers uh, a little bit more seriously than you did a couple weeks ago, Michael? I know you were pretty skeptical, as was I. Have they shown you anything? Have they convinced you anything? Or are you still, uh, you know, selling short their stock like GameStop? <laughs> what a reference! Um, I'm. I don't. I don't think I'm that convinced yet. I will admit that the, the their performance against the Lakers was super impressive. Ben Simmons has looked pretty good of late. Um, he had a, a, a really, uh, I guess, like a breakout fourth quarter against the Celtics uh, last week. That was. Uh, that's good to see from his perspective. Uh, just in terms of his aggression, getting to the rim and finishing and defending everything. And so, um, you know, he picked that up at the start of uh, last night's win against the Lakers where, I mean, he was just going at LeBron from the jump. And I feel like he's one of those players who uh, when, like, he's not aggressive at the start of a game, it's very rare that he picks it up late in a game. But when he is, like, super... Uh, pedal to the metal from the opening tip. He usually carries it throughout uh, four quarters. So that was really good to see from him. But I mean, like the story here um, for me is like two things. One is just their schedule like that. As you said, we're like over a month into the season. And that was probably their biggest or easily their biggest win, I would say, just because some of their other games against good teams, wins against good teams, like a key player was not in the lineup for the opposition. I mentioned the Celtics. Tatum didn't play in either of those games. Um, Kemba Walker, I believe, did not play in one of them. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, like, the, the, the story beyond the schedule to me is, like, Joel Embiid, and he looks like an MVP uh, frontrunner right now, which is really good to see. This is the player that uh, I think you and I were pretty skeptical of that we would ever see, frankly, heading into this season. So it's pretty awesome that he's putting it all together the way he has. And I think some of the moves that Daryl Morey made in the offseason to add more shooting have really uh, uh, accentuated Joel Embiid's strengths um, on the offensive end. So they look really good. I I still think that they're probably a player away in the playmaking department uh, from being like a true contender, from beating an LA team, uh, from beating an LA team four times out of seven tries, or even some of the teams in the East that I think are still still have a little bit of a leg up on them. But they look they look really good and probably better than I anticipated, to be honest. They're not going to make the finals. I mean, come on. We don't have to. Uh, <laughs> we don't have to get too deep into this. Uh, no, look. In all seriousness, they they did beat the Celtics, like you mentioned. Uh, you you mentioned a few of the players who didn't play for Boston. You know, Gordon Hayward didn't play for Boston either because ownership wouldn't pay him, and unfortunately, that <laughs> what is not, this low blow? <laughs> that's not looking great right now, is it? With twenty five and five and four for the Charlotte Hornets, it's amazing. Um, I'm just teasing. They also beat Miami a couple times without Bam Adebayo. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so some of those matchups, you know, Embiid versus Kelly Olynyk is a completely different conversation than Embiid versus Adebayo. I mean, obviously. And so that's why I'm still a little bit skeptical. On Simmons, I thought he played very well uh, against the Lakers. I'm wondering, 
Remember that phenomenon of national TV, Rondo, where he would like step it up and really be locked in oh. and focused when he would get on um, uh, on TNT. And there's been some comparisons between Rondo and Simmons because of the passing ability and the lack of shooting. Is it possible we're going to get ourselves a national TV Simmons going forward here? Where like you know every everyone in Philly knew that the spotlight was going to be on them for that Lakers game. And a lot of the players even referenced how sick they were of uh, commentators like us talking about their weak schedule. So they were going out to prove a point. Maybe Simmons was thinking, hey, this is my opportunity. Shore up an all-star spot. Get people talking about something else other than my reluctance to shoot the three-pointer. Make Mm -hmm. a good first impression in front of a lot of people. It's just a theory. Just tossing that one out there. I'm going to be tracking if we do get more national TV Simmons going forward. Um, We'll get to Embiid's success, and he's had a lot of it uh, in a minute. What worried me from Philadelphia's perspective last night was just the droughts. You know, they get in that second quarter and they just really struggle to score for a long stretch. Late mm-hmm. in the game, they're trying to close it out, and it's just an utter disaster on both ends. Defensive breakdowns, uh, they're not getting good shots. There's questions about where is the ball going to go in the crunch time. And some of that was influenced by Embiid taking that hard fall on the flagrant foul by LeBron. Uh, but I think some of it is just a product of Simmons not really being a great closeout option as a scorer. And then, you know, do you defer to Tobias Harris as your, you know, your go-to crunch time option? If Mm. so, I I really don't think you're going to go deep in the playoffs if that's your guy. And it can be difficult to get him beat post-up touches and and really get him into favorable spots when defenses ramp up close and tight games. So to me, that's something that I'm a little bit nervous and I will be watching on their behalf. I mean, can they do a little bit better than giving up like a 13 to zero run in the last couple of minutes of that game to nearly choke it away? And then can they just level out their overall offense? Because they're very good when Embiid's on the court. They're atrocious when Embiid is you know, not playing, like if he's injured so far this season, I don't think they've won a single game. No. And I think some of that speaks to their depth and some of it just speaks to his central importance on everything they do offensively. And, you know, he's had moments in playoff games, including against Boston last year, where he gets tired late in those games, where he makes more uh, offensive fouls, where he throws the ball away and commits turnovers, where he settles for worse shots. And if that's going to be their formula in terms of, you know, force feeding him or then hoping that Tobias bails him out late in games, I just don't think that's going to work. And it's kind of a a similar conclusion that a lot of people have reached about the Milwaukee Bucks in terms of that being their Achilles heel. I think it's a looming Achilles heel for Philadelphia as well. Yeah, no, these are these are all uh, really smart points. I mean, when I watch them play, like, they're so good when they just feed Embiid in the post. And, you know, he has taken on that role um, – and been just a totally dominant force with his back to the basket. He either gets to the line, he either draws two and kicks out and gets off the ball without turning it over, um, or he scores. Uh, And so, uh, like, the commitment to posting him up, I think, is very, very critical going forward. But, uh, like, I'm, I'm fundamentally with you when it comes to just their need for at least one more player, um, their lack of depth. I I really like how Seth Curry has played. Uh, But when Seth Curry is as important to your starting lineup as he's been, I think that that is a sign that, you know, you probably are a player away. Um, So that's that's fundamentally, I guess, like my takeaway from watching this team. And uh, and yeah, like the the, just the you want to see them beat more. I guess just better teams that are more well-rounded than they have so far. Um, but I guess, again, like 
Well, and you also okay. want to see them win games by more and and have a better point differential than they've put up sure. against even you know not that great opponents, right? And as I mentioned, that's going to be pulled back to earth by their poor performance without Embiid. I mean, going from Embiid to Dwight Howard, that's fallen off a cliff, right? So we understand that. But he's had issues with health and and missing time throughout his career, and so that's a little bit even more problematic than the typical like reliance upon a superstar factor, right? You don't necessarily pencil him in in a seventy-two game season to play you know, 68 games, it's just not going to happen. I mean, that's not who he's ever been. And so I think that's that's part of the issue too. Um, but, you know, in terms of Embiid, let's dig in there because I've seen people say he should be the MVP favorite. Um, mm-hmm. He caused a lot of problems for the Lakers individually. I think that, um, you know, he, he was bothered a little bit by Marcus Gasol early in that game, but he definitely got rolling. Uh, Anthony Davis got, you know, run over by Embiid a couple of times, just going hard to the basket. Nice, tough finishes through contact from Embiid. He's been shooting the ball very well so far this season uh, from from the three-point land. And I do think they're trying to, you know, if there is one Daryl Morey effect, I would say it's trying to get Embiid to tighten up the shot selection and to be in his best, most favorable spots as often as possible and cutting out some of the fat from his shooting diet. Um, and those are all positive trends. Defensively, Philly's top five defense, Embiid's the reason why. I mean, there's kind of no doubt about that. He blocks a lot of shots, but he also just dissuades a lot of shots with his presence around the basket. I think people mm-hmm. see him and try to do U-turns. And, you know, even LeBron, there was a couple times where Embiid's in the paint, LeBron's going up. Maybe he finishes that as a layup against uh, uh, opposing teams. But against Philly, he's kind of gliding through the air and then, you know, settling for a kickout pass to the perimeter. So you can feel his impact defensively for sure. Would you have Embiid as your uh, first quarter MVP or somebody else? I mean, he's up there for me. I would say he's top three, and it's pretty difficult to kind of separate my own top three right now. I'm 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 struggling here, Ben. Maybe you can help me. Um, but like, I have Embiid. I have Jokic, who's just on another planet right now. I think Embiid and Jokic were both named players that they're the defending players of the week, respectively, in their in their conferences, and deservedly so. Um, the other guy who I just think is uh, been tremendous this season is Kawhi Leonard, who was my preseason pick. And I think we're going to potentially talk about him later answering an angry emailer's question, um, addressing your constant slander of Kawhi. Oh, but, come on. But, but Embiid, I mean, the on-off numbers, it's really early, so we're dealing with a relatively small sample size. But I and I, I guess I like probably put too much stock in them um, for whatever reason, but his on-off numbers are just like absolutely ridiculous and you know they're like the point differentials like 22 or 23 points per 100 possessions when he's on versus when he's off and as you said uh when he hasn't played for whatever reason they haven't won a game they're 0 and 4 and i mean statistically his numbers are terrific <laughs> they're exactly what you'd want from a franchise center so plus he's shooting 40 percent from behind the three-point line with great defense so like he's he's definitely in the conversation i'm really interested to see as is the situation with so many other players and so many other teams i i just i want to see them do it in the playoffs and i want to see them do it late in the playoffs and in fourth quarters in the playoffs so like i'm kind of reserving total judgment on Embiid until i see him come through in those situations no, I hear you. And I think there's some, I mean, when you look at his numbers, it's hilarious. I mean, everyone is just, you know, he's the flavor of the month right now. 
his numbers, just box score numbers, are almost identical to Giannis's numbers, and everyone's just crushing Giannis for having like always oh, taken a step back. Milwaukee's <laughs> not the same team, so I do want to be aware of some of the perception factors that that get into these conversations, the narrative impact, where it's like you know, who's the more valuable player if Giannis has the exact same numbers as a guy who's having the best year of his career and Giannis is viewed as a disappointment. I mean, just, you know, kind of use that as a benchmark. To me, the first quarter MVP is Nikola Jokic. I say that, Mm. um, you know, I I can actually make that case now that they've been on a five-game winning streak. When they didn't have the wins, that was just kind of a deal breaker and I would have gone with LeBron. I don't think there's a single player in the NBA who's having a bigger impact on his team's success and makes his teammates better night to night this season than Jokic. He has been on an absolutely ridiculous run. If you look at his stats, they haven't been done since Oscar Robertson. I mean, he's like 25, 11, and 9 right now. All of his advanced stats are completely off the charts, and it matches the eye test. Every time they need a basket, anytime that anything happens late in close games, he has his fingerprints all over it. They run everything through him. He makes such good decisions. And he elevates very average teammates. I was trying to think, like, because this Embiid argument of, well, the Sixers are 0-4 when he doesn't play. And I was like, man, if Jokic just, like, didn't exist, what would Denver's record be? I think they would be worse than the Timberwolves, honestly. Like, if you had to survive with Jamal Murray, like Will Barton, and then Michael Porter Jr. showing up once every three weeks to play, um, I think... (laughs) You're the worst team in the Western Conference. I really do believe that. And I think right now you could say Denver, Utah, L.A., and both L.A. teams. I think any of those four teams could win the Eastern Conference if they were in the East. And I'm not convinced there's a single team right now in the Eastern Conference that could win the West. And I think Denver's had a tougher schedule. They actually have a better point differential than Philadelphia. And they've been rolling right now. So to me, it's about Jokic and his impact. Now, they're going to need to have like a top three, top four record in the Western Conference for him to actually get MVP attention. And I'm worried that he's not going to get the buzz or the notice because, I mean, he watching his postgame interviews is like watching paint dry. He is one of the most boring people and least engaged interviews I can ever remember from a player with his talent on the basketball court. Um, and that's going to work against him when it comes to the voting factors. But to me, he's number one. I would have LeBron number two, and then I'm looking at either Paul George or Joel Embiid for number three. I mean, that's wow. that's sort of where I look at uh, right now for the, the, uh, the, the MVP the, race. The, Ka- the Kawhi slander just continues out of you. I don't know what he did. Did no, are, do, no, do, no. Do, you have a, do you have a grudge against New Balance? Like, what is what's what's good here, Ben? Well, look, I mean, New Balance tried really hard to crown Kawhi, <laughs> and that one blew up in their face. It reminded me a little bit of the Under Armour power move that didn't quite turn into a power move, uh, you know, about five years ago in the sneaker game. We'll get to Kawhi later. You don't mm-hmm. think that Paul George has been the Clippers' best player so far? I mean, I think it's really close. Um, a lot of what Paul, a lot of Paul George's impact is on just unsustainably hot shooting. So I, I kind of factored that in a little bit, and also but that's why they went, won these games. I mean, it's well, like it, well, it, it, that is true. But uh, like you know, when Paul George is on the floor without Kawhi, they're not very good, and when Kawhi is on the floor without Paul George, they're very good. So. I mean, there's a reason for that. I, you know, the, Kawhi is just this stabilizing force who, you know, there's two or three guys in the world who play the game the way he does and control the tempo the way he does. Um, but no, pa- Paul George has been like really good. I don't want to disparage him at all. And that's a fine enough pick. I would just personally go with Kawhi. But like, yeah, like even with LeBron, 
who's obviously, you know, just a, having a superhuman season and was making some play, like the back cut chemistry he has with Marcus Gasol has been one of my favorite things to watch this season. And it was on full display against the Sixers. They were torching um, Simmons, by the way. Yeah, you know, like, yeah they I were. mean, Simmons had some nice defensive moments against LeBron. Uh, it you know, bothered him a little bit late, bodying him and all that. But I mean, turn your head and you're done. And he was done like three times in that game. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so I like I, I obviously all the respect to LeBron, who's having uh, just I don't even know this is unprecedented. I hate using the word unprecedented, but this is totally unprecedented what he's doing as old he as he is in 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 the what is it seventeenth year or something like that in the NBA eighteenth year age thirty six a- Michael eighteenth a- yeah I'll get that tattooed on my body so I don't forget um, and like the numbers between uh, LeBron and Kawhi are just so similar and so i just you know i tilt towards my guy on that so um but no i mean i i have nothing like you're not wrong with what you're saying but i guess like the one player we're not mentioning in this conversation is kevin durant i i feel like he should get some some mvp love as well he should well his team needs to treat him like an mvp first of all we need to see the ball (laughs) in his hands a lot more than it has been his numbers are sensational i think part of the reason why he's a little bit lower for me he did miss a little bit of time. Their record's not where it needs to be, you know, for this first quarter MVP word. And look, this is only a milepost check-in. This is not a projection of who's going to win this thing long-term. This is just who do I think has added the most value through the first quarter of the season. And Kevin Durant's right there. I mean, Brooklyn would be really, really bad without Kevin Durant. And that's why Steve Nash plays him like 47.8 minutes per night. I mean, just basically never takes him off the court because he doesn't really trust the rest of that team. When Kevin Durant's not out there, he's been very open about trying to balance, you know, taking care of Kevin Durant's body versus the need to win games and and make a positive momentum up the standings. I think that Steve Nash feels the pressure in the moment here to, uh, you know, get their record in a better spot than it is. And and you could argue the merits of that. I I think it's, you know, a little bit of too much short-term thinking. I do think you've got to find a a more reasonable and... uh, you know, restrained uh, minutes allotment for Kevin Durant. But at the same time, when he is out there, he has a a massive impact for them offensively, of course, because he scores more easily than anybody else in the league. And defensively, I think he's their most important piece late in games, right? I mean, Mm. it's not necessarily like their highest impact, like shot blocking, rim protecting type guy. But to me, he's the the, kind of the, the captain of their late game defense. And that may be why that they're constantly in like 137, 135 overtime games against the Atlanta Hawks. That might not be the world's <laughs> best formula uh, to have a regular season Kevin Durant as your defensive linchpin uh, in those moments, and yet uh, here they are. So I think it's it's actually fair to have KD right now in that fifth spot, uh, or even sixth if you're going to really cape for Kawhi Leonard as hard as you yeah. are. Uh, just, <laughs> they, they haven't won enough. Can I just say real quick, um, just looking this up right now as we're talking, uh, Kevin Durant has played 80, or I'm sorry, 70 more minutes than Joel Embiid. That's That, that kind of shocked me because, like, I know that Embiid has missed four games, but, like, KD had the, the um, you know, he's obviously coming back from an Achilles, and he had the COVID uh, protocol where he missed a few a, a few games there. So that's pretty that's pretty interesting to me. Well, yeah, it's it's also really sad. I mean, every game shouldn't go to three overtimes, yes. Brooklyn. Just yes. close some of these out by giving <laughs> the easy money sniper the ball in the final two minutes. He'll be just fine. All right, we got a question from Nick. He says, hey, can we talk about how LeBron James is putting up his typical stats from his best years from a per 36 standpoint? 
at age 36. There you go, Michael. Tattoo it right onto your brain. Don't don't you think he's going to be viewed as the true MVP favorite? So, Michael, I mean, the narrative thing I was mentioning earlier, that's going to work against Jokic. I think Embiid's got a little bit of uh, MVP narrative juice right now just because the bubble was so bad for Philly. They've turned it around. You know, you got some a uh, new coach, new front office, a couple new starters. You know, reinvigorated Embiid. I think people can kind of rally around that one a little bit. For mm-hmm. sure, people are going to be racing to to give KD the MVP if he you know leads Brooklyn to like the best record in the Eastern Conference and and they really take off as a team. I think that he's well positioned from a narrative standpoint. But LeBron's also like a narrative monolith here. The Career Achievement Award, the Lakers are cruising through the season, uh, you know, coming off of their title push. LeBron's, you know, still the best leader in the game, still the smartest player on the court every single night, still putting up monster numbers. He's doing it in ways that have never been done before, like you mentioned earlier. Is that going to wind up? I mean, if you had to bet, like, who is actually going to win this thing? Uh, you know, fast forward to to May. What do you think? Mm-hmm. So, you know, strictly keeping it in the LeBron versus uh, Kawhi conversation and just in that context, I think that LeBron, like, I think like whichever team is in first place in the Western Conference, like their best player, either LeBron or Kawhi, can kind of, I guess, capture the narrative aspect of this race because you have, obviously, everyone wants to give. LeBron James, another MVP that's just, you know, padding to his legacy and his historical importance to the game. But like, I feel like you could also spin it to, you know, Kawhi Leonard is this really great all-time winning player who has played at an MVP caliber level when healthy, yet he has no MVP. This might be the, the, the best time to give him the MVP. I could see that also kind of factoring in, but when it comes down to it, I think voters are going to look at which team is better. Um, there's obviously a bunch of other factors, but like if the Lakers are five games up on the Clippers or the Clippers are, are three games up on the Lakers, like I think that that will matter quite a bit. So as we're talking here, just as a data point, because I know you love data, ESPN has just released their real plus minus ratings for the, the start of the season. You know, they always oh, wait geez. to get a little bit of a, a, you know, a sample size here. So do you know who number one in the league in real plus minus is right now? So it, I'm going to guess. It proves the emailer's point. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to guess um, LeBron. It's LeBron James, Michael. The email was about <laughs> okay. LeBron James. So Kawhi, okay. it's interesting. Kawhi's 14th. Giannis 14th? is 13th. Yeah. Oh, jeez. No, okay. I know. You, you badly overrate him. Like I said, Paul George is 5th. Uh, Giannis is 13th. Kevin Durant is 10th. Joel Embiid is 11th. Uh, Nikola Jokic is seventh, and the surprise of all surprise, Kyrie Irving is sixth. That's pretty wild. Steph Curry's in third, and number two, the guy you profiled last week, none oh, other yeah. than CJ McCollum from the Portland Trailblazers. So um, that's always very interesting. Do you use real plus minus when you're looking at your MVP ballot or when you're trying to like make your your list? Does that one factor in pretty heavily for you? Because I'll be honest, you know, you talked about the on off numbers. I used hmm. to use those a lot, and now I rely more on real plus minus because I feel like maybe it's a little bit more fine tuned. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a tool for sure, and it's really interesting here because you know, five thirty eight has its own kind of catch all metric called Raptor, and I, I have no idea what that 
um, that acronym stands for, but it basically tracks, you know, on off impact in the same way that real plus minus tries to. And in that stat, uh, Kawhi is, I believe first right now. So I, I assume that they were pretty, you know, not identical, obviously, but pretty similar in just their algorithm and how they kind of calculate this stuff. Uh, so I was surprised to see Kawhi that far down, um, LeBron fares well in just about any uh, tabulation of statistical data, so this doesn't surprise me necessarily that he's number one. I am a little—I I, got to be honest—I am a little stunned that uh, that Kyrie is this high. Uh, that one, I, I don't—I don't know. <laughs> well, I think part of it can be explained by the fact that he hasn't played as many games as a lot of the other guys, and you know he's yeah. been a very efficient scorer when he has played. It does seem like the top of the real plus minus charts this year are dominated largely by guys who have major offensive impacts and not necessarily the two-way players. I don't know if they've changed their formula to kind of favor that or not, um, but uh, that that's just one thing to keep in mind too is that you're seeing a lot of you know, elite scoring guys. Well, you might say Kawhi Leonard, for example, is a more balanced two-way player at this point than Paul George, and Paul George's early success has really been driven by his hot shooting like you're describing. For real plus minus, that's reflecting Paul George having a stronger start than Kawhi Leonard, and and that may shake out over the course of the season. We shall see. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep experts. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. This is Colin Coward from The Herd with Colin Cowherd. Angie's list is now Angie, the nation's largest home service marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big, small, indoor, outdoor, come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled pros to get the job done well. Listen, I've got a couple of things in a bathroom in my house. Got to get it fixed. I don't have time, and I'm not good at it. Angie is. With just a few taps on the app, you can have Angie tackle your home service project start to finish. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects really easy. It's your one-stop shop. Angie can help you find the best price for your project by comparing quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. 
They get the difficulties that can come with home projects. They get it. Why not make it as simple as possible? Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. Paid by up-level rewards. Paid participation required. Actor portrayal. Attention all listeners. Are you ready to earn $750? Well, get ready because I'm about to introduce you to GetMy750.com. The ultimate way to earn. Here's the scoop. Instead of just streaming shows or playing games on your phone for nothing, you have the chance to earn additional cash. That's right. From trying out new subscriptions to playing your favorite mobile games, you can get extra cash in your pocket. Simply sign up at GetMy750.com and follow the instructions to start earning immediately. So, what are you waiting for? Turn your favorite apps into real cash with GetMy750.com. Don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to earn rewards for things you're already doing on your phone. Check out GetMy750.com today. That's right. Get started right now at GetMy750.com. Just go to GetMy750.com or Google Get My 750 Cash. Follow the simple instructions and get your $750. That's GetMy750.com. GetMy750.com. Um, Nick had another question on LeBron and the MVP trophy and all this. And I'm just curious what you think. When presenting the finals MVP trophy to LeBron, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver mentioned that he looked forward to naming an award after LeBron. What award do you think that would be? Would they have to create a new one? Also, how does Michael Jordan not have an NBA award named after him? Wouldn't it make sense to give him an award first? So what do you think, Michael? Should we have a LeBron James award? If so, what is it? And does MJ need uh, more gratification after a lifetime of it? I'm (laughs) from you specifically. Um, I'm really proud of the LeBron James award that I made up. But before I get to it, I think we... Didn't we talk about um, how, like, the scoring title should be named, like, the winner of the scoring championship every year should be named after Michael Jordan, who was the 10-time, who led the league in scoring 10 times in his career, and I think he has the highest all-time career scoring average. Um, didn't we, did we, did we already cover that, I think? Michael, I mean, this is going to be a, something you're learning the longer you're podcasting with me. <laughs> Once these podcasts go out into the universe, you know, I, you, <laughs> who knows what I've said? Uh, it's actually, that's absolutely true. I'm glad I didn't come up with that idea again and pretend it was original. That would have been very embarrassing. Um, no, that sounds right. Do, what about trophies, though, or what about awards? I mean, did you... I was kind of going back to this idea of the MVP award. I mean, should that because mm-hmm. like, there's a there's an MVP trophy. I think it's named after Maurice Podoloff. I mean, come on, bro. Like, I understand. Like, <laughs> you're 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 an important figure within the overall NBA community, and I understand why. Like, when you're first starting the MVP award, you just need to name it after somebody. So you you go to the forefather. But I think we could all agree, like the Michael Jordan Trophy for MVP or the Michael Jordan MVP award would be cooler than the Maurice Podoloff trophy. I don't think anyone's going to argue that. And it would also more accurately reflect the sport and the game and the league at large. So I would be leaning towards having MJ associated with that MVP uh, award. But what do you think about for LeBron? Uh, I mean, is is that going to be his lane? Yeah, I don't want to disparage Maurice Podoloff, but when you do Google his name, the first thing that comes up is uh, uh, American Lawyer. So... You know, um, <laughs> I don't know if it's time to change that or or what. But it's like um, the Jumpman logo, but instead of a basketball in his hand, he's got legal briefs or something, or he's exactly. got like the scales of justice. <laughs> yeah, no, we're good there. We don't need to worry about that. 
Yeah, but let me tell you, uh, let me see what you think about um, uh, the award that I I just made up out of thin air for LeBron. Bring it on. And I don't, I, I don't really have a name for it or anything. I guess it would be the LeBron James Award. But, you know, what if the NBA acknowledged the most impactful free agent signing from the previous offseason? Sort of like, you know, I think LeBron James, he has a lot of really great uh, things that he'll be remembered for, but the decision and player empowerment will be a humongous part of his legacy after he retires. And so, you know, who, which player that was signed as a free agent that made the biggest impact in their new team, that could be the, you know, I, I feel like the, the NBA should acknowledge that that is a humongous part of its, of its game and its sport right now, just, uh, you know, transactional moves. And it would be pretty cool to, like, uh, see who, you know, like right now, it's like you mentioned Gordon Hayward earlier, like Gordon Hayward would be, would be a contender for the LeBron James Award, being that he signed with the Charlotte Hornets and uh, has had such, this, such a positive impact. I think that would be pretty fun. Do you like that idea? That's really interesting. This is like the most talent-taking award or like the biggest <laughs> blockbuster award, the LeBron James blockbuster yeah. award. Uh, it's interesting, for sure. Well, I mean, I've talked about having the idea of like an agent of the year award or maybe like actually letting the media vote on executive of the year rather than having the executives vote for their best friends every year so that we get these like really goofy results in that uh, award voting. Uh, I wouldn't be opposed at all to expanding the overall and formalizing the kinds of winners and losers talk that we do every single offseason, whether it's the draft or free agency or trades. Finding ways to uh, to put that into writing at the end of the year would be awesome. Like imagine the best draft pick of the year award, right? I mean, that would be a fun one too. So uh, you, you could go that direction. I have a very old man take, and it's actually a tough sell after LeBron got called for a flagrant foul for shoving Joel Embiid out of the air last <laughs> night in a play that Joel Embiid took. Uh, you know, he, he had a problem with it. He told the reporters afterwards he thought it was very dangerous and should have been a, a flagrant too. It was LeBron's like first flagrant foul, I think, since 2014, something like that, yeah. which is pretty yeah. wild given how many games and how much contact LeBron's taken in the last seven years. But, um, you know, it, it does happen. I think it should be the LeBron James Sportsmanship Award. And I think that adding LeBron's name to it will elevate that award in a way that it's desperately needed. Now, LeBron has always been one of these guys, I'm going to try to play every single night. I'm not going to do the load management thing. I'm always going to shake hands after I lose. I'm not going to pull an Isaiah Mm -hmm. Thomas and run off the court. I'm going to call every young player under the age of 23 a young king on Instagram and try to like build up the next generation, right? He, he wants to be – his career goal right now is to play on the same team as his son, Bronny. And I think ultimately like LeBron also played the right way his entire career. And that's sort of what he views as you know an important aspect to how he approaches late game situations, for example. He doesn't always want to be the hero. He's just as willing to pass in those spots as he is to shoot. Um, you know, he wants to play hard both ends, especially when he was in his athletic prime. An all-around complete player, somebody who has been an ambassador for the sport on mm-hmm. the court, but also off the court. I mean, you go back to the bubble, who was talking about Breonna Taylor and Jacob Blake and gun control and President Trump and every other, uh, you know, topic of political conversation that you could imagine LeBron voting stepped rights. up to the plate. Voting rights and the more than a voter initiative. And I think right now the NBA has these awards like the, the teammate like award or the sportsmanship award or like the mm-hmm. best with the media award. 
And nobody really cares about those awards, right? But those things are really important. Sportsmanship matters a lot. And that's kind of how this whole thing can keep going in a positive direction. I think if you had the Michael Jordan MVP award and the LeBron James Sportsmanship Award, can you imagine a future generation of player was able to capture both of those in the same year, how much we could hype that guy up? I think it's time, Michael. What about the Best Ability is Availability Award? Just the Cal Ripken Award? Just every <laughs> single night he's out there? Um, yeah, I mean, the John Stockton, you know, you could probably call that. You know, here I go, turning it back to Stockton like I warned about earlier. But um, I think that there's something to this idea of, of elevating the, import, uh, the importance of sportsmanship and just reflecting this idea of LeBron as a figure within the NBA community, not just a player. All right, Michael, I'm going to shift gears to a question here. It comes in from Reuven, and you often tell me, Michael, that you're jealous of some random idea that I come up with. Well, maybe not often, but every once in a while, and it means so much to me. I pretend it happens all the time. I'm jealous of this idea from Reuven. I'm curious what you think. He says, first, congrats to Michael on the new job at SI. On your latest episode, you guys discussed the Nets' limited options for trading Kyrie to reinforce their defense. If the Nets are going to break up the KD, Kyrie, DJ, James Harden click, it seems more likely that KD at least gives tacit approval on a trade that sends out DeAndre Jordan rather than Kyrie Irving. If the Nets keep hemorrhaging points at a rate that would be concerning if it were your blood pressure, not sure if blood pressure hemorrhages, but we're going to let that one go, Ruben. He continues, <laughs> let alone your favorite team's defensive rating, I can see one move that both the Nets and their trade partner would possibly pursue based on their respective organizational motivations. What if the Nets send DeAndre Jordan, Spencer Dinwiddie, and Landry Shamit to Oklahoma City for Al Horford and a second-round pick? And he says, uh, the ostensibly prohibitive factor here for any team interested in an Al Horford trade is that while he can still substantially benefit a team, he he's paid $27 million, and that would be an albatross for most teams' cap sheets. The Nets are the rare team that really doesn't care about a luxury tax bill if it will generate wins, and they have a Jarrett Allen-sized hole in their rotation that Joel Embiid is a few months away from drop-stepping and dunking right through. On the other side, his argument for OKC is, look, they're rebuilding. They get a couple of young players. They can afford to wait on a Spencer Dinwiddie coming back from his injury. And this is just more asset collection for Sam Presti. Michael, this really does feel an awful lot like a Sam Presti trade. We had talked about when he acquired Al Horford that it was only a matter of time before he turned him around and traded Al Horford for somebody else. What do you think about Horford's fit in Brooklyn? And do you think that, uh, you know, this could be a possible solution to what ails the Nets? Hmm. I mean, I think, first of all, that Horford would fit in great in in Brooklyn and he would make them better and a little bit more versatile in both ends um, than DeAndre Jordan can right now. Um, that said, I like this is like whack-a-mole team building on Brooklyn's part. Like if you if you slide out DJ for Horford, it doesn't really solve like your depth at the big spot, like at the five hole. So like I like I don't I don't know why Brooklyn would do this necessarily. Like they need to add bigs or they need to add some sources of rim protection and rebounding. And this you take away someone who's like a key part of that. For well, you because sl- slow down one second there. So you, sure. you you have an immediate problem, which is the playoffs are going to start in May, and DeAndre mm-hmm. Jordan is like your most important big man. That is basically a crisis. You're going to have to go against Milwaukee with Giannis putting pressure on the rim. 
Philadelphia, who Reuven mentioned with Joel Embiid. Um, you know, you don't have to worry about Boston and Daniel Tice. No offense. Love Daniel Tice, but not not necessarily a concern on that front. And then you also have to deal with uh, Bam Adebayo, potentially, if Miami can pull its stuff together, right? So you have, you know, if you're going to make the finals, you have to make a move in this spot. Those other two teams, especially Philly and Milwaukee, are putting pressure on your position. And Horford would definitely be better in the short term this season than Jordan, right? I guess so. I don't like. I, I I don't think that it's that simple because I mean, there's obviously like the off court relationships there, and you would need like tacit um, approval from KD and Kyrie and whoever else to do something like this. And also, DJ, as you've pointed out, has been an above the rim pick and roll partner for Harden and Kyrie and pick and roll action that. Like Horford, that's really not so much the way he impacts um, an offense. Um, no, so he I can't think that jump. That, I mean, you could just say it straight <laughs> out. Like he can't. Get I'm trying to be nice. Five inches <laughs> off the ground. That's fine. Yeah. So it's just that that would be it would change how they want to play a little bit on offense. I think that at their best, they the Brooklyn Nets offense at their best has like a dive presence, like DJ. Um, and then also like giving up someone like Shamit, honestly, even though he's out of the rotation, like Landry Shamit has played, like, I think he's proven that he can play in big games and he's right now he's basically insurance in case someone like TLC or Joe Harris or Bruce Brown or whoever gets hurt. So I, I just don't think that, uh, I don't think that Brooklyn would make a move like this for a, a variety of reasons. Um, in a vacuum, I do think that Al Horford is a better basketball player than DeAndre Jordan, but I think they need to add to what they have instead of subtracting. So I'm not sure that they would make this move today, but if they keep playing all these games in the 120s and 125s and they just can't stop anybody and DeAndre is not on the court late and KD has to carry all that defensive weight, and you're trying to get by with KD and Jeff Green as your crunch time defenders, I definitely think they would consider a trade like this, say, you know, before the deadline, which is a little bit later than usual this year, obviously because of the uh, the schedule changes. I, I would do this if I was Brooklyn, just flat out. I mean, I think wow. I would, because the, off, the defensive benefit here outweighs the offensive loss, and I think because Horford can be a stretch big, at least in theory, um, you're okay giving up his dive offense uh, in favor of having more space for your three, you know, lead scores to attack the basket, right? I think you're going to be able to cover up um, for whatever you're losing from Jordan offensively, and then defensively to just have somebody who's competent in pick and rolls and can kind of handle the toughest matchups and can push back against an Embiid or against you know Milwaukee's bigger lineups is going to be very important for matchup purposes. I don't think Jordan brings that much to the table. Um, it's just nice that they're able to get some offense from him. To me, that's kind of like a bonus, and it's definitely better than what it was like before they had Harden. But I don't think that's some crippling blow if they lose him. And if you've got Horford in that spot, then I think you can get a simpler, just sort of one-dimensional dunker you know, in a buyout-type situation behind him. And now your your big-man rotation just overall looks better than it is currently. I would do it, but I also I wouldn't have to pay the bill for it, right? So I was that's about, I was that, about that, to say. I think that's kind of the biggest hangup. The combination of how much money it would cost, plus, um, you know, plus the the personal friendships and everything, you know, that that makes it maybe a little bit less likely. But these guys are all in right now. They really want to win. They have to win. They're going to be feeling the pressure 
everyone's going to mock them if they're still just hovering kind of in the neighborhood of 500 a month or six weeks from now. And so I, to me, they're going to be the most active buyer at the trade deadline in the league still. And I don't know if they're going to be able to get someone as high profile as an Al Horford, but you can just guarantee Brooklyn's going to make multiple moves to their roster by the time the playoffs roll around. Yeah, this is just a hard one to sell to Josiah, the owner of the Brooklyn Nets, even though the man Are is we made sure? of money. <laughs> kind of feels like he's pretty easy to sell stuff to, honestly. I mean, <laughs> like, you know, maybe, Michael, maybe. I mean, this guy's been very committed. He's taken some chances. He rolled the dice with Kyrie. He rolled the dice with Steve Nash. I mean, he's been aggressive. He wasn't afraid to part with 63 first-round picks to get James Harden. Like, I don't, I'm not saying that Josiah is driving the hardest bargains in the league right now. I wouldn't say that. No, I, I mean, I, I agree with you there. I think that the, just the marginal ch- chance of, like, the, the the marginal upgrade in your championship odds costing $27 million next season plus whatever the luxury tax would be with Horford's contract. Like, I just, that's, I mean, the man is a businessman. Like, he's weary of like wasting dollars for the sake of uh, uh, like it's like just lighting money on fire like I, I i don't i don't know i you know I i'm not know. a billionaire he looks like an east coast <laughs> bomber to me i gotta say and they're not gonna want that humiliation factor of if they go out early it's gonna be so hard to swallow they're gonna be so upset uh, i'm i'm banking on josiah stepping up to the plate and swinging big wherever he possibly can and I think that uh, the idea of Shamit and then the injured Dinwiddie as kind of combined assets to go out and get a piece is pretty interesting because I don't understand why Shamit's not in the rotation. And mm. I think that there'd be a lot of teams that would play him. And, you know, frankly, Steve Nash, you should play Landry Shamit. Not that complicated. All right. You mentioned the Kawhi Leonard question we got, uh, you know, quite a bit ago. Here it comes. Reed is pretty upset. First time, long time. Love the show. Just had some things I need to clear up. Last week I was listening and I heard Ben said he would take Jokic over Kawhi in a playoff series. I couldn't take it anymore. Ben has been slandering Kawhi for a long time now. I've heard it all, even when he was giving Giannis Inc. the business and thoroughly outplaying Giannis in the 2019 Eastern Conference Finals. Ben wouldn't even give him proper credit for that without being salty. Now I've heard Ben slander Kawhi multiple times for not getting it done in the playoffs, but still ride for Giannis. After seeing him spectacularly flame out three years in a row, this man is a two-time Finals MVP and two-time Defensive Player of the Year with some of the greatest playoff performances in history, aside from last year's flame out, which I had to watch and endure. I guess what I'm getting at is what gives, and I know Michael will back me up here. Reed, this is an awful generous uh, discussion about Kawhi Leonard's legacy. So first of all, two-time Finals MVP. The first Finals MVP was Duncan's. I don't know why it ended up in Kawhi's hands. Oh, my God. There's no question. I mean, I covered every single one of those playoff games in the 2014 run, my favorite playoff run of all time. That team was run on Tim Duncan. Everybody else was revolving around Tim Duncan. He was the most important player. And if Tim Duncan got the same level of idol worship that the media has generally given LeBron James. He would not only have that finals MVP, he would have Tony Parker's finals MVP too, because everyone would just realize that he was the bedrock of the Spurs. Look what happened to the Spurs as soon as Duncan left. Okay, that's number one. Um, I think that Kawhi Leonard absolutely is a two-time champion. You can't argue with that. 
I would say his post. <laughs> Bad thanks. <laughs> but hey, he should be a three-time champion. Let's not forget he also choked away the 2013 finals at the free throw line, costing Duncan another title. I never forgot. <sighs> the true hardcore San Antonio Spurs fans never forgot either. Just keep that in mind. Um, I don't really remember a ton of legendary postseason performances from Kawhi Leonard. I've watched basically all of them. He had a very nice run for the Toronto Raptors, right? They were very fortunate along the way to win that championship in terms of the injuries that hit Golden State. Kawhi Leonard was the driving force, but he was not the only force of that title team. And when he's had to be in leadership positions, everybody from Greg Popovich on down has questioned his ability to do it. And so the main reason why I'm hard on Kawhi Leonard on this show is because I feel like he just gets a pass from almost the entire media landscape because he doesn't really engage in interviews. He doesn't say a lot. He tends to fly under the radar. And you look at last year's flameout. It's a perfect example. Reed just wants to brush it off his resume like no big deal. But meanwhile, Paul George has to take all of the slander. Doc Rivers gets fired. All of the Clippers role players get completely roasted and nobody turns around and say, well, where was Kawhi Leonard in the Clippers losses during that series? We can't just excuse that away. Had LeBron played like that, or in the case that Reed wants to use, had Giannis played like Kawhi played in a couple of the losses against uh, Denver in that series, they would be roasted for months. We would never hear the end of it. And yet Kawhi Leonard just kind of, you know, skates on by, nobody even, uh, you know, talks about it and he moves forward. So, I'm just trying to provide an equal standard. For some reason, that comes across as slander. Um, I, I don't really get it. I think that Kawhi Leonard's been phenomenal in key moments. Like I said, I do believe I gave him the credit in 2019 when he won that title. I think I even had him as the number one player on my top 100 the following year. I don't think that me picking Jokic over Kawhi at this moment right now to, to take to, to win a playoff series is that controversial of a take. The only guy who's been as close to as good as Jokic this season in the NBA, in my opinion, is LeBron James. If you gave them equal rosters, equal talent, equal committed ownership groups, equal coaches, equal rotations, and all of that, I think Jokic is taking a team farther. He makes his teammates better. His vision is in a, a place that Kawhi Leonard could never even hope to have from a passing standpoint. And his, Jeez Louise. His shot making is better than Kawhi Leonard's shot making. It just is. The guy is an unbelievable clutch threat. I trust him in those late game moments. Now, Kawhi is a better defensive player. I'll grant you that. But if you gave Jokic <laughs> a couple passable perimeter <laughs> defenders instead of the replacement level guys that Denver has been thrown out around Jokic for years, I think that you would see even more success from Jokic. So, I don't think it's that controversial. I think it's a reasonable debate. I'm willing to hear arguments on Kawhi Leonard's side. I just This is really more about Jokic and this being his moment and him fully blossoming and taking the next step in his career and not getting enough attention for it as opposed to Kawhi Leonard where, okay, he's got all these you know two-time this, two-time that. Well, I mean, come on. There, it's, it's a more complicated story than that. He was a role player in 2014, and he had a lot of help and a lot of good injury luck to other teams in 2019. I, I don't think that uh, we need to be elevating Kawhi Leonard to the LeBron James category like you like to. Okay, so let's, real quick, let's start with 2014. The series is tied 1-1. This is what Kawhi Leonard did. Uh, in the next three games, the Spurs won all three to win the championship. He had 29 points on 13 shots in game three. He was plus 19 in that game. Game four, he's plus 23, 20 points, 14 rebounds. 
uh, three steals, three blocks. Game four, he is plus 23, 20 points, 14 rebounds, three steals, three blocks. Game five, the series clincher, 22 points, 10 rebounds, plus 15, seven for 10 shooting, uh, guarding LeBron James the entire time for basically every minute he's on the floor. Um, so yeah, he was. I think he was more than a a uh, a role player for the San Antonio Spurs. Then I mean, he, that's when he first started to elevate himself. He deserved the Finals MVP. I think he was the youngest or one of the youngest Finals MVPs ever. Um, and I mean, I, I really don't even. I can't go through the resume here or make the case why Kawhi is great. I think that his numbers kind of speak for themselves. They're very very similar to LeBron's right now. Kawhi is not. Uh, sitting for back-to-backs. There's only been two, I believe, that the Clippers have played this season. Yeah, I know. That's what you're supposed to do. He's an NBA basketball player playing basketball. And now that he's not sitting, we're supposed to give him credit because he decided to sit for multiple years and the NBA told him that he couldn't. I mean, it's nice that he's back and healthy, but why are we giving him credit for doing what he was supposed to be doing this entire time? Old man Gulliver, settle down. Everybody needs load management. Everyone knows the 82-game schedule is too much on the body. He's I ag- preserving I himself. I agree, but we're not going to give Can him I just, credit wait, wait, for playing. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so I know, I, wait, real quick, I know that you want to come back at me with Tim Duncan right now. Um, what did Tim Duncan through, do throughout the majority of his career after he suffered a couple early injuries? Did he well, did yeah. he gut through? When he was 38, they might have sat him <laughs> once in a while. He still carried the 2014 Spurs, put him on his back as the as the emotional leader and the defensive backbone and uh, the facilitating big man who was unselfish and kept all of his teammates involved. You want to talk about the state, the stability, and the rock? There's just no comparison between the Duncan Spurs and the Leonard Spurs. And and I think also, you know, some of my criticism for Kawhi, it's about stuff that isn't basketball. How he bailed on the Spurs, the lack of communication there. I mean, to me, last season with the Clippers, again, he skated on a lot of their locker room issues. People didn't want to point the figure at him because he's the best player. He was a big part of the problem. You know, everybody felt distant from him. There weren't those close communications. Uh, Everybody wasn't on the same page. There was the Kawhi show and the Everybody Else show, and people danced around that. It's not the end of the world. No player is perfect. No person is perfect, but it's something that needs to be acknowledged when we're discussing, okay, like, you know, who would you rather prefer? If I was an NBA player, I would way rather play with Jokic than play with Kawhi Leonard because I know for sure Jokic is going to make me my best self, right? I've seen what he can do to the Will Bartons and Jamichael Greens and Malik Beasley's and Gary Harris's and all these guys of the world, right? And I know that whatever I could possibly do as a player, Jokic is going to pull that out of me. With Kawhi Leonard, he might not even say hi to me, you know? do I, Does he even know my name? That's a question. You know, just because you are clearly a sensitive individual with some insecurities that's not Kawhi Leonard's fault Ben so I don't want you to bring that into the argument here (laughs) do you think Kawhi Leonard could make you your best NBA player if you're his teammate or do you feel like you're just standing in the corner watching him take tough twos hey if I get a ring I don't I don't care ask Danny Green how he felt in the in the 2009 finals about it it's okay like we'll I'll have that championship I'll lie to my grandchildren about my contributions that season I'm, I'm fine it's okay All right, all right, Michael. We're getting a little bit too feisty here. I think that crystallized the Kawhi Leonard debate, uh, hopefully for our our listener. It's it's not hate. I think that there's been lots of moments to respect Kawhi Leonard, and I'm just asking him to do a little bit more. It was a catastrophic loss last season. He was his fingerprints were all over it, 
And if they win this year, I will be right back there giving him credit um, for them winning. But I'm going to remain skeptical because I do think some of these things uh, influence team dynamics. And, um, you know, I, I want to see him and his his approach work in these situations. All right. We've got a question from Kevin, Michael. He says, Michael Pina, your story about the Orlando Magic this week was great. I like the angle you came in with. As a fan of the team, I think it's more satisfying to root for the success of players who have been together, but I openly recognize we have not improved on the court itself over the last three years. Jonathan Isaac being hurt for a lot of that time period has probably been the biggest reason why, though I'm not sure there's any more lemonade to squeeze out of this roster's lemons. Six years of being terrible didn't really get us anywhere, so I think it's best to win the games you can and compete every night and hopefully the basketball gods reward you. So, Michael, give us a little insight on this piece you wrote about the Orlando Magic. I mean, understandably, they've been sort of stuck treading water. You know, one year they're in the, the playoffs, but they go out early. The next, maybe they just barely miss. They haven't ever really accumulated that superstar franchise-level player with their draft picks. It seems like they've got, you know, a number of good but not great or even major impact guys in those spots. They don't have a ton to show for you know, a sustained uh, time period of, of losing or me- mediocrity, if you want to call it that. And yet mm. Kevin, who is just a diehard Orlando Magic fan, sounds like he's pretty much okay with it in part because he's gotten to see a core group play together for a while and, and it built up some, uh, you know, good feelings along the way. Are you feeling that this team has reached a crossroads though? And, and what did you hear from players down there who have been kind of part of the same group for year after year where it's not really working? They really haven't had the breakthrough. And let's be honest, that breakthrough's not coming for this group. So how are they feeling about, uh, you know, the last five or six years down there? Yeah, so I mean, the the premise of the story came to me when I was just looking at some uh, some roster continuity numbers over the past few years. And what really caught my eye was that Orlando was basically second to the Denver Nuggets over the past three off seasons. And that's really surprising because the Denver Nuggets have really good reason to keep everything together. They have Jokic, as we have talked about for much of this episode. He is great. They have Jamal Murray. They have a lot of really interesting young players who contribute Um, So they have no motivation to make a humongous trade and mortgage their future or anything like that or take steps back or get future assets, whatever. Um, The Orlando Magic, on the other hand, you know, two straight appearances in the playoffs, no uh, playoff wins since 2011. And I, I just thought it was really interesting that they have not made any like seismic moves in a league that is really defined by impatience to either go forward or take a step back. And I think to be fair to them, there's two things that I want to say to be fair to them. One is that in the previous six years before uh, Jeff Weltman took over, they had the absolute lowest winning percentage in the entire NBA. Um, And so, you know, six straight years of not making the playoffs, being in the lottery, uh, total ineptitude. You know, you want to get some consistency. You want to win games. You want to make the playoffs. That is an accomplishment. Um, and so it's sort of like, you know, you, you have to walk before you run. Maybe they're not running, but Weltman's got them in like the light jogging phase. They're not just crawling <laughs> to the bottom of the Eastern Conference like they used to is what you're saying? Sure. And then the other thing I'll say is that, you know, they have been ravaged by injuries, to be fair. Uh, you know, Jonathan Isaac, who is a cornerstone figure for them, someone who I, I love, Jonathan Isaac, um, obviously tore his ACL uh, in the bubble and, uh, you know, 
starting this season. They're five and two or six and two, and Markel Fultz tears his ACL, and they've got injuries left and right, um, up and down their roster right now that they're trying to work their way through. So you talk to players down there, and I mean the injuries are the first thing that really stand out, but also like they, you know, the guys that have been there for a really long time: Terrence Ross, Aaron Gordon, Nikola Vucevic, um, Evan Fournier. There's this like. Uh, a dueling feeling of like on one hand I really love the fact that I'm playing with guys who like I'm familiar with I'm comfortable with on and off the court and uh, I have a great bond and chemistry with them and then on the other hand it's like yeah there is this feeling of um, you know Evan Fournier told me a quote that I used as the kicker for the story which is like if we're not getting better and we're not showing growth then why would the front office want to keep everything together. So I think they are approaching a breaking point potentially. And I also can see like them keeping everything together and getting healthy for next season with some of the key players who are hurt right now and seeing what they have or having a clearer vision for what they have going forward beyond that. Um, So it's like a really, I don't know why I'm fascinated by the Orlando Magic. I'm just fascinated by continuity in general now because it's, you know, we live in this era of, of player empowerment where there's so much roster movement and, and teams are worried about losing guys in free agency. So they make trades and everyone wants to hoard draft picks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the, the Magic are just kind of not operating that way or at least they haven't in three years which is it's both a really short amount of time and it's also an eternity in today's league so I just I thought that they were really interesting and that's why I wrote the story yeah I mean I've been ready for them to kind of mix it up and shake it up for a couple years now and I do think they're an interesting case study with the pandemic right because it's an organization that has never spent tons and tons of money into the luxury tax it's actually a small market organization I think it's a, a team that has prided itself on trying to get players on decent value contracts and just, you know, keeping that group together, like you're describing, that goes back even before uh, Weltman. So they're trying to, you know, they're they're running this show with an eye towards the bottom line, I guess is my point, right? And usually the fans get restless at some point, right? You get this pushback and you either see it with your attendance figures or you just see it from, you know, booze at stadiums. I mean, that's kind of like the last check on on uh, you know continuity that's going nowhere is when the fans kind of turn on you a little bit or you have to manage that reputation. And I think because of the pandemic with really basically no fans in the building or very limited fans in, in only a certain number of uh, markets, it kind of freed organizations to just be who they normally would be, right? Uh, so if you're an aggressive team going all out for a title, well, your plans aren't really going to change too much. But if you're a team that is cost conscious, like Orlando Magic or like the Oklahoma City Thunder or even like the Houston Rockets where, you know, they're trading off big talent because they can't put fans in the seats, right? And and they're they're struggling to kind of keep things together and everybody on the same page from a financial standpoint. I think that kind of thing shows through. And so to me, you know, it's almost like the pandemic gave them a little bit of a pass for this season, right? Where it's like, okay, well, this would have been a normal time in the life cycle to break up this group in some meaningful way to try to go to, you know, a different direction to just shake it up to kind of keep people interested and they didn't really need to do that. And, you know, we'll see if they come back out the other side of the pandemic feeling that pressure or not. But uh, to me, it kind of just feels like they took a pass this season. Is is that a crazy read? In part because of the injuries that you're describing and they knew it was going to be a little bit of a, a down year just not having Isaac anyways. But I, I feel like they almost use this as a, a cover story in a way to be like, eh, 
all right, we're not going to pay Augustin, whatever. You know, we're, we're going to ride with Fultz as long as that'll take us. Oh, it'll only work for 10 games. Eh, whatever. Check back next year. <laughs> That's kind of my read on them. Is that inaccurate? Um, I think that that is uh, a fair read for sure. I do think that, you know, that was probably my opinion before I really started reporting to it and talking to a bunch of people. Um, and... Um, you know, well, yeah, who, it's, who changed your mind, I guess, or did you not change your mind? Because it's cool that they're buddies, but it would be cooler if they won. <laughs> no, I mean, you're 100% right. And continuity is not everything. And staleness and stagnation are for sure factors. I think like I was just, I think when I look at the injuries, um, and I look at like some of the, you know, just like how roles get clarified when everybody's healthy. So someone like Aaron Gordon, who's asked to be a point guard right now, um, might be doing something else in a lineup where, you know, Nikola Vucevic is suddenly shooting threes like he's CJ McCollum and uh, there's way more space on the floor for him to operate. And, uh, you know, Jonathan Isaac is out there looking like, um, a, a perennial all-star, which is something I think he can be someday if healthy. Uh, so it's like I don't know. I, I like I don't really I don't really know like what to what to what read to take on this team because like they need that franchise player, that like Brad Beal esque player. And if someone like Brad Beal was available, which maybe Brad Beal is, like, do you make this massive trade and forfeit? all of your future draft picks plus some of your young talent for Brad Beal knowing that you can't even keep him but how are you going to get a player like Brad Beal in the door in the first place and that's the player you need to actually take the next step from where you've been so it's just like a really it's a really complicated place that they're in right now and I'm just really intrigued to see where they go from here they kind of seem like the little brother version of the Indiana Pacers. The Pacers for so long have been like, you know what? We're shooting for respectable, right? We want to put a, a product on the court that our fans in Indiana can be proud of. And we're going to wear these uh, the Hoosier jerseys mm-hmm. and people are going to still ride with us. And that's going to be who we are. And Orlando's like, we're going to be the slightly less ambitious version of that, right? Like, we're just going to try not to be the Knicks. Yeah, no, it's really interesting that you use the Pacers because Sabonis could have been on the magic they trade Victor Oladipo and the 11th pick in that draft for Serge Ibaka to Oklahoma City once upon a time and so sometimes you make moves and it's just like you're trying to win right away and and add a player like Ibaka but that can hurt you down the line obviously because Sabonis has developed into something way way better than that for sure I would say they're better off in the post Hennigan era than they were during the Hennigan era I would say that number one and number two Mm. if you are trying to spin this positively for them I mean, coming out of the pandemic with a healthy Jonathan Isaac, a healthy Markel Fultz, and maybe you do make a shakeup trade next summer just to get a little bit of new blood, make yourself younger, more exciting. They could be in a pretty good spot, not only from an excitement standpoint, but from an upside longer term potential standpoint as well. So they're not Mm -hmm. that far away from doing it. I think they've been incredibly patient and my patience has worn out, so I'm impressed that they have more patience than I do, but it doesn't mean that it's out forever, and they're, they're still in a position where they could come out of this thing next season and be you know, in a, in a much more intriguing spot. We'll have to see. Michael, I want to close this episode out, though, with a question from uh, Michael, and it's really a story. Uh, Michael in Tasmania, he writes, it's sobering to realize that we are at the anniversary of the death of the great Kobe Bryant. 
While this is obviously a sad occasion, rather than dwell on the negative, I'd rather remember all the good times that Kobe gave me and other fans around the globe. My personal favorite Kobe memory was his farewell game, not for the scoring prowess on display, but because of the setting I found myself in. My wife at the time had given birth to our second child mere hours before the game, and I sat in the hospital, wife and newborn child by my side as I watched the game on my phone, watching one of the greatest players one last time. As the fourth quarter went on and the points piled up, so did the tension. There was around one minute to go. The ball was in Kobe's hands when a nurse came barging into the room, talking loudly about my child, my wife, doing tests, etc., The pressure of the moment got to me, and I'm embarrassed to say I told the nurse to be quiet rather rudely. I can't imagine why my wife and I split up. It's truly a mystery. Two questions. What is your favorite Kobe memory? And second, what is the most inappropriate time or setting you have watched a game of basketball? Oh, boy, that got a real heavy twist there at the end of that story from Michael. Michael, condolences on the marriage. Um... (laughs) Uh, I guess it was still worth it, maybe, if he's that big of a Kobe fan, Michael. I'm not sure exactly what like the Dear Prudence answer is here. You know, It's like maybe find a way to patch things up. I don't know. Um, <laughs> what is your favorite Kobe memory? Uh, you know, I know you're a green beer drinking Celtics diehard who probably hates Kobe's guts, but I'm sure you've got a favorite Kobe memory. But more importantly, do you have an example of an inappropriate timer setting that you watched a game of basketball and maybe you cursed out a nurse and ruined a marriage? I have no family-friendly examples to share about inappropriate times that I watched a basketball game. I did. Well, Michael, I will, it's I, just us here. There's nobody else listening. No, you yeah, can, no, you can no tell me all your personal sure. details. It'd be great. 100%. I definitely could not lose my job if I said what I want to say. But I, I did. I will share that I did once watch the 2010 Eastern Conference semifinals at a bar in Quito, Ecuador. And Whoa. I was asked to I was asked to leave multiple times because of some choice words that I had for Anton Jameson and Mo Williams. I was just screaming at the projector throughout that Cavs Celtics series that the Celtics won, of course. Um, Are so you allowed I'll back just, to Ecuador? I mean, you, you said you were no, kicked I, out. I mean, was this a passport <laughs> control issue or was this just a bar <laughs> issue? It was a bar issue. Um, Would have been awesome if it was a passport control issue. There's just like a big red X next to your profile photo. (laughs) Sorry, sir. You're not allowed back. Too much negativity towards the Cleveland Cavaliers, Ecuador's team. Yeah, so so that happened. um, And I guess like my – I have a lot of Kobe memories, obviously, like everybody else who watches basketball. Um, I will say, uh, you know, covering – I can't remember if I told this story on the pod when we, uh, you know, we're commemorating his passing a year ago and just really uh, telling a lot of different stories. But I covered uh, his last game at Staples Center, um, and there was a timeout near the end as he was approaching 60 points, and a Kanye song was, like, blasting through the arena, and everyone was on their feet going nuts. And I'm seated in the media section behind, like, along the baseline, behind the basket, and I turn to my left, and I see Kanye... And he's dancing to his own song. And I noticed that my seats were better than his. Oh. And I was like, yeah, that was like, and I, I just like was pinching myself because uh, I, I'm pretty sure you were, uh, well, you lived, I know you live, lived in Los Angeles um, at the time. And you know, like how expensive seats were for that game. Like it was, ast- it was like the Super Bowl, it was astronomical pricing. So I was just like, I cannot believe, I obviously didn't pay for my seat or anything like that because I was a media member, but 
just the fact that I, I was seated closer to the action than Kanye uh, and his song was playing. I, I just that's not even like a Kobe memory. That's just a life memory that I'll no, just that, that's not even like a humble brag either. That's just a straight up brag. You were like, Kanye, hold up. I'm gonna let you finish. <laughs> but I've got the best vantage point of all time right now. Um, that's pretty awesome. Uh, I think my my favorite Kobe memory, 2016 All-Star Weekend uh, up in Toronto. He's the biggest star among all stars. You know, In that year, he's even outshining LeBron James because it was his farewell tour. And I'll never forget the number of international media members who brought Kobe Bryant like elaborate gifts on behalf of themselves, their media outlets, their countries, their national fan bases. I mean, there was like pictures of Kobe designed, like, you know, hand-drawn pictures of Kobe, like samurai swordsmen. Um, It's just everything you could possibly imagine, fancy uh, wine and liquor and food and just like all this stuff at a press conference where you're absolutely never supposed to give anyone presents whatsoever. Um, You know, I actually heard some people you know, when I was really young, uh, a writer get their credentials revoked for trying to bring gifts to to players and and things like that. So here was like a sanctioned uh, going away party in in a way for Kobe Bryant on behalf of the global basketball community. And I'll just never forget that because it was I've never seen anything like it before. Never seen anything like it since. I guess I have. Uh, you know, Kareem Abdul Jabbar had a, a a goodbye a year where he was presented with various things at different arenas. Um, obviously, you know, Jordan, you know, I think it was like the Mariah Carey send-off song during one All-Star weekend. So there are tributes, kind of official NBA tributes to these guys, but this was more of like a personal tribute from lots and lots of different people who were just like angling and, and reaching out and almost just trying to touch him. I and mean, this is reporters, you know, who are just kind of losing their mind over the idea that Kobe would be leaving the sport after, you know, incredible 20-year career. Uh, just never really seen anything like it from just a fame standpoint, from a buy-in standpoint, just from, uh, you know, just everyone being almost overwhelmed with emotion in that moment. And, and that's one that I'll never forget for sure. Um, in terms of his other question, you know, what's an inappropriate time or setting that you have watched a basketball game? I don't have a great one for this, but one, um, you know, just memory that his his story triggered, Michael, was after the malice at the palace, you know, Um I remember being in college and it was like I was going out for the night and I had watched that game and the fight like right before it happened. And I just remember every single person, including just strangers on the streets of Baltimore, but then people at like a house party and just like this sorority party, that fraternity party, whatever, just rushing to tell every single person that I knew that I had just watched a brawl between the Indiana Pacers and the Detroit Pistons and fans and reenacting the sliding punch and just trying to guess how long these guys were going to be suspended and, oh, are they ever going to play basketball again? And just having, like, there's a lot of those memes where, like, the guy is telling the girl something and she's just, like, nodding along, not paying attention. That was basically me for, like, the next seven hours of my life trying to just spread the word before there was social media, before there was Twitter. You know, how do we just kind of, like, share this moment that literally nobody else had seen at that point? Um, Definitely feels inappropriate in hindsight. It's like I didn't need to be quite that worked up over it. But then again, it wound up being this, like, crazy moment of uh, NBA history and a real inflection point for the David Stern tenure in terms of how he handled player relations and all that stuff. So maybe my reaction was at least somewhat warranted, but just try to picture me walking into like a sorority party where pretty much everyone's wearing pink, you know, at least the uh, the members. And I'm like, guys, you will not believe what Jermaine O'Neal did. Let me just tell you, it's just, uh, you know, really out of step, Michael. That sounds like you, to be honest. 
Yeah, okay. Well, maybe my entire life is an inappropriate time to talk about (laughs) basketball when you put it that way. All right, Michael, we've reached the end of another rollicking episode of Open Floor. Guys, I would love to hear your story. What's the most inappropriate time or setting that you have watched a game of basketball? And did it, like Michael from Tasmania, wind up costing you your wife? Let us know. Openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com. In all seriousness, Michael, I hope you can patch things back together if you want to. If not, I hope you were able to take some joy from our conversations about Kobe Bryant today and take a little solace knowing that Michael, despite all the green beer down there in South America, was not allowed to stay in that establishment. All right, Michael, they could find you on Instagram at Michael Villas and Victor Pina. Same at on Twitter at Michael Villas and Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben Golver on Twitter at Ben Golver. They can find us on Apple Podcasts by searching for open floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. We will be back next week. As always, I'm sure we're going to have some all-star stuff to discuss, Michael. They are planning, in the early stages anyway, of hosting an all-star game in Atlanta uh, come March. So we're going to get in maybe to who should be the starters, maybe who should be some of the reserve picks, who should be some first-timers. I'm sure those kinds of conversations are going to heat up next week. Until then, Michael, I will talk. Talk soon, Ben. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. When we come together, it's magic. And for 30 years, we've celebrated that. Because our ideas, our art, our flavor, our community, our impact, there's nothing like it. Here in this place. This is where we fall more in love with everything that makes us, us. This is the place where we love us. Celebrate 30 years of loving us at Essence Festival. Get your tickets at EssenceFestival.com. State Farm and DJ Dramos from Life as a Gringo know that getting your money right brings freedom, empowerment, and future success. It's like we have to unlearn, as we do in every other part of our lives, but financially unlearn a lot of the BS that we were taught that holds us back from getting the sort of lifestyle that we want and being able to live the comfortable, financially free lifestyle that I'm sure all of us are striving for. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card. Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.